If you don't mind standing with me today, we're going to be in uh, Jonah, the book of Jonah, chapter 3. The book of Jonah, it's between Obadiah and Micah. And if, if you can't find it, just pick a book and act like you're in Jonah. Don't, don't, don't front like y'all never had to do that before. The, pre the preacher say Jonah and you end up in John. It's like, at least I got the J right, right? Amen. Jonah, book of Jonah. Listen, this is what we'll do. Normally, we'll have you guys read. They're on the projectors if you don't have a, a Bible. Um, normally, we'll have you guys read, but I will, uh, I'll uh, give you guys a break today and I'll read. Is that okay? Because Pastor E, man, we could be having like 10 verses and y'all going to read every single verse. So I'm going I'm to read for us today. Verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days in journey in breath. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hand. Verse number nine, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse number 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I, uh, Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you uh, just for um, salvation being in Jesus. We thank you that you give us the spirit of repentance. Not just repentance, but as, as Acts chapter 11 says, repentance that leads to life. Realizing that repentance is only found in the cross of Christ. So, Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit's working today. Father, I, I desperately need you. We need you. We can't hear. We can't speak. We can't do anything without you. For you remove the scales from our eyes. You make dead hearts alive. It's only found in you. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us that spirit of repentance that's found in this passage today. It's in Christ's beautiful name we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before we, before we dive in, I just want to say uh, happy anniversary to my wife. Amen. We made 11 years yesterday. Amen. And uh, I was out to eat with a, uh, uh, I was at lunch with a pastor earlier this week, and I told him I was going on 11 years, and he said, man, you only look 11. I'm, 
I'm like, Doc, the, the word of the Lord is preaching through you right now with what you just said. Amen. But we made 11 years, and, and I was, you know, just thinking back to the first time I met my wife, and um, she was all up on a brother. I'm just, I'm just telling y'all, she was, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Trust me, that was completely the other way around. Um, I was, I was mesmerized by her beauty, her intellect, and just for how she appreciates God and, and her pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, ha happy anniversary to my hun, my babe, my macadamia nut, my sugar date, and you know, we, we love a name, right? All right, let's get into the word of the Lord. Uh, <laughs> bring it back. Let's get into the word of the Lord. Last week, I was in uh, Nashville, Tennessee with our pastor, uh, Pastor Eric Mason, and he had to preach at a Lifeway conference that had about uh, 5,000 men that were hungry for Jesus, about 5,000 men there. Um, and so we pulled up to the Coliseum Arena, and as we we're, were pulling up, we sit in the parking lot and literally just meditate on the goodness of Christ. And, and we're just talking and we're praying, and he begins to um, unpack for me the difference between a gospel-saturated church and a grace-driven church. The difference between a gospel-saturated church and a grace-driven church, sometimes you'll think that those two um, are just synonymous, but it's not always the case. So he began to unpack, to, uh, unpack that to me. And so today, that's what, what I want to preach. I want to preach from a topic that's entitled, Creating a Culture of Repentance. Creating a Culture of Repentance. I want to start off with a, with a quote from John Calvin. John Calvin was an influential um, French theologian slash pastor during the uh, Protestant Reformation. John Calvin said this, surely no one can embrace the, the grace of the gospel without betaking himself from the error of his past life into the right way. Here it is. And applying his whole effort to the practice of repentance. To the practice of repentance. I love the fact that he said the practice of repentance because it points out to us that repentance isn't a one-stop one shop. It isn't a one-deal thing. Now, certainly, repentance is a key element. It's a key element for our conversion. But repentance doesn't stop on the day that we were converted. But our conversion, our repentance on the day of our conversion thrust us into a life that is filled with repentance. I'll, I'll sum it up like this. Repentance is this. Before salvation, pre-salvation, I sinned more and repented less. But after salvation... I, re I sinned less and repented more. Does that make sense? Notice I didn't say I stopped sinning, but I sinned less and repented more. A friend asked me not too long ago, he said, you know, do I really need to repent every single day? And so you know me, I, I answer questions with questions. And so I said, well, well, do you sin every day? And he's like, yeah, I guess I, guess I do. And I'm like, well, I think repentance is is necessary um, every day. But I, I surely do not want to be that guy that just quotes Calvin. For Calvin didn't save me. Christ saved me. And so I want to quote Christ. Matthew chapter 4, one of the most beautiful things happens. Jesus begins his ministry, Matthew chapter 4, and he preaches his first sermon. And the first word of the sermon that he preached was what? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means it's close. First word, repent. repent. Repentance points to the fact that we're sinners. 
Repentance points to the fact that we're sinners, and we're not just sinners because we sin, although we do. We're sinners because it's a part of our nature. And because it's a part of our nature, ongoing repentance is necessary. And so I, I, it, it kind of points to what's called progressive sanctification. Okay, progressive sanctification. Now, progressive sanctification is different than positional sanctification. Progressive sanctification is this. It's the process in our daily lives where we, we are being more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. All right, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you receive, in which you stand, and then he says, in which you are being saved. He points out that it's, it's, he didn't say in which you were saved. He didn't say in which you have been saved, but he said in which you are being saved talks about a renewal, a constant renewal until the consummation, until he comes back and redeems and makes everything new. But that is absolutely different than positional sanctification. Positional sanctification is this. It's the state of holiness that is imputed into every single Christian the moment he believes. So the moment you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, positionally, you're spotless. Positionally, you're, you're, you're right, because you have Jesus Christ's righteousness that's imputed in you. You're perfect, you're spotless, you're blameless. That's positionally. But practically, I'm still a hot mess. Is there anybody that can be honest and say practically, I, positionally, I'm good, but practically, I, I got a lot of work. That's what repentance points to. Repentance in the Greek literally means to, um, to change one, one's mind are to turn from wicked and turn to God. That is what repentance means. And so that brings us to our passage here in Jonah. We're in Jonah chapter 3, but Jonah is a story. All four chapters of Jonah is, is a story. It's just continual. It's not choppy. It's not broke up. It's not like a narrative. The book of Jonah is a story. And so I, I have to give us some context to where we are because I don't want to start in chapter 3 and then we not understand um, chapters one and two. But I will say, Jonah, Christian, um, modern evangelicalism has reduced the book of Jonah to just a good child story. We, we reduced it to be just, not even just a good child story, but a good nighttime story for our kids. So it, it's really, it loses its meaning, but the book of Jonah has so much in it. It points out the character of God. It points out the wickedness of man. And so we'll, we'll get into some of that today. But in chapter 1 of Jonah, this is very familiar to most of you. Chapter 1 in Jonah, the Bible says that God comes to Jonah and tells him that, the, that Nineveh's wickedness has been brought up before me. And so because their wickedness was brought up before me, I need you as my prophet to go to Nineveh and call them out on their wickedness. Jonah decides he wants to help God out and say, you know what, that's a good plan, but I don't want to do that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to head down to Joppa, get on a boat that heads to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish geographically was in the opposite direction of Nineveh. But, but Jonah wasn't just running from Nineveh. Jonah was running from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah jumps on a boat at Joppa, heads to Tarshish. As he's in the middle of the ocean, the Bible says that God hurled a storm, a massive storm. This storm was so enormous and so big that the ship began to break up. 
So the men on the boat are throwing off the cargo off the boat because the, the ship is literally breaking to pieces. And meanwhile, our boy Jonah is down in the inner parts of the boat sleep. Bible says that the captain of the boat goes down and says, wake up and pray to your God. Jonah wakes up, fast forward. They then cast lots because they want to see who, who was disobeying their God and who brought this evil upon them. And so they cast lots. The lot fell on Jonah. And then they do something crazy. They ask, they ask Jonah a question. Now, I wouldn't ask this, but the men on the boat said, what are we to do with you? There's really only one thing to do. But they said, what are we to do with you that this evil doesn't come upon us? Jonah says, Brandon Watts translation, Jonah says, if you know what's good, you better throw me overboard. You throw me overboard so that you won't be punished with me. They take his advice, they chuck him overboard. Jonah is now, this is so beautiful because God is so sovereign over everything. Because even as they threw him overboard, the scripture says that the storm immediately stopped. That's crazy. The storm immediately stopped once he hit the water. So they threw him in the water, storm stopped. Bible says that God prepared a fish. Now it doesn't say well, although some of you will say, well, it says well. The Bible does not say well. It says that he prepared a great fish or a large fish. The fish comes and swallows Jonah up. Fast forward to chapter two. Jonah's now in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And while he's in the belly, and I said, well, <laughs> see how this, it's the influences around. <laughs> the Bible says that he was in the fish for three days and three nights. As he's in the fish, he's praying. He's praying to God. And then that brings us to where we are in chapter three today. God has given Jonah a second commission. A second commission, which is crazy. Giving him a second commission. Now, understand something, though, about, about this. This is, the beautiful thing is, this is how wise our God is. The Bible says that he created this fish, or prepared this fish, which would have been so significant in this ancient part of the world. Because in the ancient part of the world, in, in Nineveh, the predominantly worshipped God there was a God called a Dagon God. Dagon God. Now, Dagon worship was literally the worship of a fish God. Hear this. It was the worship of a fish God, which would have gave, which would have validated the message that Jonah was preaching because when a man is on the shore and he sees a great fish come to the shore and literally vomit someone up on the shore, they would have knew that a God had done that. And so Jonah is now on the shore, he's been vomited up by the fish, and he's given um, the second commission. Which brings me to my first point. My first point is this, God is relentless in his pursuit of seeing us repent. He is relentless in his pursuit of seeing us repent. Look at what the word of the Lord says. Verse number one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Stop there. A second time. Now, this is crazy because God didn't have to sin. After Jonah disobeyed him, he could have allowed the sea to swallow up Jonah and never had sent another prophet to Nineveh. And he would have still been good because Nineveh was wicked. And so God could have not sent another prophet and allowed Nineveh to be destroyed. But yet God is so wise and so gracious that he allows 
Jonah to be prepared in this fish for three days, three nights in order to get his attention so that he could still see Nineveh repent. Not only is he relentless in his pursuit of seeing Nineveh repent, but he's gracious in lavishing his grace on Jonah. Because let's just be honest, Jonah, Jonah isn't the most godly, kingdom-minded prophet. I mean, he's not Ezekiel, right? He's not Jeremiah. He's, he's, he's not Isaiah. The Bible says that Isaiah stopped the sun. He, he's not Isaiah. He is prideful, arrogant, and not after the will of God. And so God didn't have to give him a second chance. God didn't have to do that. But yet God was gracious. Now, if I'm God, which I'm not, if, my, if I'm the creator and creation rebels and disobeys me, I'm going to prepare a fish. But it's probably going to be a great white shark. <laughs> Seriously, to literally rip him to shreds. But that's not our God. That's not our God. Our God is gracious. We know that Jonah, we know that Jonah was, was, was not the most kingdom-minded because Jonah didn't run from Nineveh because he was scared of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was wicked, but he, he didn't run from Nineveh because he was scared of them. He ran from Nineveh because he knew that God was gracious. Look at verse number, look, look at chapter four, if you just want to glance over real quick. Chapter number four, verse number two. This is what Jonah says after the Lord relented from his anger. This is what Jonah says. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Here it is. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from his disaster. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't want to see Nineveh receive the grace of God. What kind of prophet does that? <laughs> what, what kind of prophet does that? He didn't want to see. This is the wickedness that is in Jonah's heart. But before we judge Jonah, we have to look at ourselves. We have to put ourselves in this place because so often that is, let me ask this question. It's a rhetorical question. Do not answer it because people are going to look at you funny. So just look straight and, and ponder upon this question. Have you ever been happy when something bad happens to somebody else and you thought that it should. Think about that. I have to, I have to, <laughs> y'all answering. I have to often, I have to often pray against this. I'm not talking like car accident and death type, but I'm just saying something bad happens to somebody that you feel like it should have happened to. That is what, that is what our boy Jonah is going through right now. Because Nineveh was an enemy of Israel. And so Jonah didn't want to see Israel, uh, Nineveh receive the grace and the mercy that he received. That he received. Let's, uh, let, let, let's keep moving. Let's, uh, let, let's look at verse number two. Arise, this is, what, this is what God said. Arise and go to Nineveh. Now let's chat for a second. Let's chat for one second. Nineveh was an extremely, extremely wicked city extremely wicked. If you could give an award out for the most wicked city in the Bible, Nineveh would win hands down. They win every Grammy. They win every Oscar. 
they win every VMA. They win every beat, not BET, forget BET. They win every MTV award, BET be ghetto, right? I'm sorry, bring it back. MTV, they win every MTV award. They win every award because they, they were worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, Nineveh was so wicked that there is an entire book of the Bible dedicated to just talking about how wicked Nineveh is. An entire book, the book of Nahum. Two more books later, the entire, I'm not talking like a chapter. The whole book talks about how wicked Nineveh is. The first chapter talks about God's wrath against Nineveh. Second chapter talks about his destruction on Nineveh. And then the third chapter of that book pronounces a woe on Nineveh. And even God pronouncing a woe on Nineveh, he doesn't just say woe to Nineveh. He says woe to that bloody city. They were wicked. They weren't just wicked, but they were violent. The Bible says that there was 120,000 people in that city that didn't know their right hand from their left hand. They were a wicked city. In fact, they were so wicked, I'm just, I got to give you context because we have to see the wickedness of Nineveh in order to understand the grace of God. We have to see this. Nineveh was so wicked that when they would conquer a city, they would take someone alive and literally skin him, peel the skin off of his flesh. And if that's not bad enough, they would take that skin back to their tent and use it as the walls of their tent. Yeah, that's how wicked Nineveh was. They would conquer a city and they would take the infants of the city, take them out to the streets and literally smash them on the ground. That's the wickedness of Nineveh. Nineveh was so wicked that when the king, Nineveh was a, a, um, the capital of Assyria. When the king would conquer a city, he would cut off the head of that king, of that nation, and bring it back. And so when they would have like festivals and feasts and celebrations, he would bring out the heads of conquered kings as entertainment. That is the wickedness of Nineveh. But how gracious is our God that even in the midst of Nineveh being such a wicked place that God is pursuing them. He's pursuing them, which brings me to my second point. God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. Let me say that again. God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. Look what he says in verse number two. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Whoa, he called Nineveh a great city. Now, now, there's four times in the book of Jonah that God calls Nineveh a great city. Two of those times we know he's talking about the, the uh, geographical size because Nineveh was huge. And we know that he was talking about the population in two of them. The other two, he just simply says they're a great city. Although they were wicked, he calls them a great city. This is so... Um, this points to us as well, because some of us think that our sin is the exception. We think that God can't, he surely cannot forgive me. I am wicked. I, he, at a, he's before time, but it's no way he ever ran across in his time. It's no way he ever ran across my sin. That's what we think. We think that God is not gracious, but his capacity to forgive us is so much greater than our capacity to sin. He is Christus Victor. 
The cross of Christ is victorious over every single sin that you could have committed. Let's, not, let's keep in mind, the people that God chose to use in the Bible often were very wicked men. What about David? David arranged for a man to be killed and then took his wife. Moses killed a man. Has anybody in here ever killed anybody? Don't answer that. <laughs> we got, we in urban missions, it, it's possible, it's possible. And, and honestly, some of you look a little shady, so I wouldn't put it past us. But even if you did, God is gracious and abounding in steadfast love and can forgive you. That is the graciousness of our God. What about, what about um, Paul? Paul, think about Paul. He persecuted the church, persecuted Christians. These were wicked men, but God chose to lavish his grace and love on them. Let's go to uh, verse number three. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was, well, let's stop there. He chose, he, the Bible says that Jonah now said, I'm going to go. Now, as we're talking about repentance, it, it's so important for you to understand this. The, the repentance that Jonah is, is, is showing now is not real repentance. Jonah's not going because he, he it has a change of heart or he, he now all of a sudden is on God's plan. Jonah is going because he does not want to end up back in the, the, the belly of a fish. That's why Jonah's going. The repentance that Jonah is showing now is what is called attrition repentance. That's what it's called, attrition repentance. Attrition repentance is this. It's a person that repents but is not heartfelt or sorry for, for the wrongdoing but is selfishly motivated uh, by potential punishment. That's what attrition repentance is. It's me saying I'm sorry because I don't want to get in trouble. Kids do this all the time. Kids do this all the time. They, I, I, I'm sorry, please forgive me, please forgive me. I, don't, I won't do it again. They're not heartfelt and sorrowful, right? They just don't want to be punished. Not only the kids, but Husbands, men, we gotta, we gotta be very careful and we gotta fight off and, and pray against attrition repentance. Because, see, let me tell y'all something, ladies, let me just tell y'all something. Men don't like to argue. I'm not saying you do, I'm just saying. Men don't like to argue. <laughs> no, seriously, the ladies, uh, be, be careful. But men don't like to argue, so oftentimes, even in a man saying, I'm sorry, often can be fueled by he doesn't want potential punishment of arguing. Yeah. He doesn't want potential punishment of arguing. So we have to be so, so careful of attrition repentance. That is not true repentance. The difference, the Bible often distinguishes between these two. The difference between attrition repentance is a repentance called contrition repentance. Now, contrition repentance is real repentance. All right, this entails heartfelt uh, sorrow for offending God and others. This is the repentance that we see in Psalms 51 with David. When David cries out, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. That is real repentance. So there's a difference between attrition repentance and contrition repentance. 
And we have to be careful as we're talking about repentance that we're not falling into the place of attrition, but we always land into a place of attrition or contrition. Let's keep going. Verse number three. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Verse number four, Jonah began to go into the city. Going a day's journey, he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now this rocks me. This rocks me. Jonah has disobeyed God. Jonah has been in a horrible storm, been in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, vomited onto the shore, walked miles and miles and miles and miles to get to Nineveh to preach Eight words. Look at this. He pre- Look what he said in, in, in verse number four. He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words. Eight words. But this is the beauty of our God. God took eight words and rocked a whole nation. Rocked a whole nation. I mean, ain't the king done came off his throne. He done put sackcloth on. He's sitting in ashes. Ain't nobody eating. The cows is hungry. (laughs) They calling out and crying out. Because the Bible doesn't just say, this is the crazy thing. The Bible doesn't just say that the men and women put on sackcloth and ashes, but even the animals. I mean, the, the whole nation is rocked by eight words. How much more power does the cross have? How much, in fact, this very chapter that we're reading right now, Jesus talks about this chapter in Luke chapter 10. And he said that the city of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Eight words, at the preaching of Jonah. And then he said, but something greater than Jonah is here. Come on, somebody. Something greater than Jonah is here. So the cross of Christ, God took eight words rocked the nation, rocked the city, brought people to their knees in repentance. How much more greater does the cross have? How much more power does the cross have? See, we, here's the thing, we, we talk too much. We, we want too many counseling sessions. We got to have eight counseling sessions to get to a place of repentance. We got to have 10 meetings. And I'm not against counseling. I'm not against meetings. I think they're appropriate. But if we got to counsel and meet over the same thing, over and over again, something's wrong. Because Jonah, eight words. Eight words and rocked the nation. Brought them to their knees in eight words. But even us, see, we have to be, we have to be so prepared to call people. Because that's what Jonah did. He walked into the middle of the city and called the nation to the carpet. We have to be so ready to call people to the carpet. Not only be ready to call people to the carpet, but also for, to allow people to call us to the carpet. This is why community is so important. This is why we stress the need for life groups here, because it gives us an atmosphere that is conducive for repentance. But even us, even our calling people to the carpet has to be done with love. The gospel must be the standard in which we use to call people to the carpet. The gospel must be. When Paul called Peter to the carpet, in Galatians chapter two, verse number 14, when Paul called him to the carpet, He said, when I saw that their conduct was out of step with the gospel. Think about this. He didn't just give his opinion. See, we want to call people to the carpet and give them our opinion. Well, I think you shouldn't have said 
this, and I think you shouldn't have did this. No, what does the Bible say? God gave us 66 books, 1,189 chapters. Use the Bible to call people to the carpet and to allow yourself to be called to the carpet because Romans is clear that we've all sinned. You don't need no Greek. You don't need no Hebrew for that. We all have sinned. We've all fallen. But even in our calling people to the carpet, it has to be in love. Because Paul told Titus, encourage and rebuke. Encourage and rebuke. I love what Martin Luther says. Martin Luther says, keep an apple beside the rod to give him when he does well. Keep an apple by the rod to to give him when he does well. But I'm surprised at Jonah here. Because Jonah's eight words are really a doom and gloom message. Jonah knew that God was gracious. Jonah knew that God was merciful. But Jonah doesn't talk about any of that in his sermon. Now, God used those eight words, but Jonah, as a prophet of God, he did not tell the people of Nineveh to turn from their wickedness, and if you repent, God is gracious. All he said was, in verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He gave He gave no hint that God was gracious in this sermon. We have to be so careful. Now, I'm not against bad news. I don't don't want you to hear me say that I'm against bad news. I think the gospel, when sharing the gospel, it has to be good news and bad news. Let me tell you why. A professor once told me, um, I graduated from Cairn University, and a professor said to me right before I graduated, he said, you know, Today, it seems like everybody is claiming that they're a Christian. Like, you ask anybody, they don't know the gospel. Everybody claims that they're a Christian. And he said to me, as you're leaving this school, you have to work hard. Before God can save someone, you have to work hard at getting them unsaved. Does that make sense? We have to be very, very strategic in showing people the depravity of where they are so that they can get a love for the grace of God and the holiness and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let's keep moving. He preached a doom and gloom message. Point number three, my last point is this. True repentance allows for everybody to repent. If if we're going to really create a culture of repentance, not just at church, but in our homes, if we're going to create a culture of repentance, We have to allow for everybody to repent. Look at verse number five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. From the greatest to the least. From the king to the kids. Everybody repented. Speaking of kids, we as parents, and not just parents, but I I do believe it takes a village to to raise a child. I, I really believe that. We have to show our kids and teach our kids what repentance is. As, as, as uh, Pastor Kurt talked about that Psalms 127 and, and pointing that arrow, we have to point our kids towards a healthy life of repentance. And the best way, the easiest way to show our kids how to repent is by us modeling it for them. They need to see mommy and daddy repent. They need to see us say we're sorry. I repent probably every other day, if not every day, to my kids. Because I let them know, daddy's sinful. Daddy's, daddy can be wicked. 
especially in the mornings. I'm, they, they, in the mornings, <laughs> I don't know why in the mornings, like, I, it, I'm impatient. It takes me a while to, to rev up, and, and they wake up and are on 10. I think they drink coffee when I'm asleep. They wake up and are on 10 from the moment they wake up. But I often have to repent to them and say, I'm sorry. Daddy, you know daddy sinned when he said that? Daddy should not have said that. We have to show our kids what repentance actually looks like. But that's the best way to show them. But I, this is the thing I love about repentance. Repentance, it transcends everything. It transcends socioeconomic backgrounds. It transcends educational levels. I, I'm willing to bet, and I'm not a betting man, but I'm willing to bet that somebody in here, people in here, have master, master's degrees and doctrinal degrees. And then I'm willing to bet that there's some people in here that have GEDs. I'm willing to bet that there are some people in here that make $150,000 to $200,000 a year. Now, now, if that's you, I need you to holler at me. Um, I, I'm in a season of support raising, so. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's gonna get me in so much trouble. The elders are going to have me in their office this week. I can see Pastor Nyron saying, you know, you should not have said that. <laughs> there's some people in here that make 150,000, 200,000. Then there's some people in here that make 20,000. But the beautiful thing about repentance is none of that matters. None of it matters. The only thing that matters is that we have what, what David said, a broken and contrite heart before the Lord. Let's keep moving because I'm running out of time. Verse number six. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is crazy because the royal robe represented the king's position. It was made of the finest material, and it represented his position. Bible is telling us that he literally took off his robe and put on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth was coarse. It was uncomfortable. It was made of camel, and ha uh, camel hair and goat hair. He took off the luxury of his position, stepped down off of his throne so that he could repent. The king. And then he sat in ashes. Ashes points to, um, uh, uh, it points to the heart towards repentance. It, it kind of identifies you with the dead. That's how deep repentance is. We often will only repent as much as our position allows. It's, it's so dangerous. We only repent enough to keep operating in our position. And just keep operating and keep operating. And it's dangerous but the leader of the nation took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, set in ashes so that he could repent to the Lord. If we're really going to be serious about creating a culture of repentance, we have to not just allow a healthy atmosphere of repentance for the members, but for the leaders as well. For the leaders as well. I say it all the time. And I'll make it very clear. I'll scream it from the mountaintop. We have here at Epiphany Fellowship the best elder team I've ever seen in my life. We have the best elders. But as good as they are, they are still men. And they're still sinful and wicked in their own way. They'll, they'll admit it. 
But we have to be, if we're going to create a culture that is healthy for repentance, we have to allow these men to be able to confess sin and continue to lead. Depending on the depth of the sin, but we have to allow them to confess and continue to lead. Because let's not get it twisted. The king took off his robe and put on camel skin, or camel hair, but he still led. Look at verse 7. And he issued a proclamation. The first, he sitting in ashes, took off, he's off his position, but he still led. And so we have to be very careful that we don't allow these men to not be able to confess sin because leaders that don't confess sin are leaders that fall. Leaders that do not confess sin are leaders that fall. That fall. So we have to allow them to be able to do that. Let's keep moving. Verse number seven, and he issued a proclamation and published bef- uh, through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let him not feed or drink water. So what they're doing here is they're fasting. So fasting points to a deeper spiritual need. And, and it pulls away, it, pu- it turns our plate down, pu- pushes us against the table. The king has issued a decree that nobody is to eat. Nobody is to eat. Now, some of us would be able to, to develop a healthy appetite for the Lord if we stop eating so much spiritual junk food. If we stop eating so such spiritual, spirit, as Pastor E talked last week and talked about functional gods, right? That is spiritual junk food. That's what that is. And see, let me tell you something about junk food. Every now and then I'll create, uh, I'll make a, 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 like a meal from scratch. All right, I, I'm, that means I'm not using the box potatoes, you know, mashed potatoes, but I'm actually taking a potato, boiling it, and mashing it. Every now and then you have to make one of those type of meals, especially on Sundays. Because for some reason, fried chicken on Sundays tastes better than any day of the week. <laughs> but every now and then I make one of those type of meals. And when I make those meals, my kids often, because it takes a little bit longer to prepare, my kids often will run to the cabinet and grab cookies and cake and stuff like that. And so then when I sit the nutritionally, nutritionally balanced food in front of them, they're full. They've spoiled their appetite off of junk food. And so often we spoil our appetite for the Lord because we're eating stuff that we should not eat. And so that is what Nineveh is doing. They've pulled back from the table so that they could get in tune with the Lord and be at a healthy place of repentance. Let's keep going. Verse number eight. But let man, be, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hand. This is great. He says, let everyone call out mightily to God. That is repentance. Repentance does not call out to God without telling God the sin that we've done. Because so often in this modern day Christian world, we want to call out to God, but don't want to be honest with our, with our sin. But the Bible just said that they called out mightily to God. Let's keep going. Verse number nine. Who knows? I love this question. Let me tell you why I love this question. Who knows? Because what that does is that shows that the king had a healthy anticipation of the Lord's grace. A healthy anticipation. I love these verses. First John 1 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful 
and just to forgive us of our sin and purify us from unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, he's faithful. That's the anticipation. What about Micah 7, verses 18 through 19 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning the iniquity and passing over the transgression of his remnant, of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread over our iniquities under our foot and will cast our sin into the depths of the sea. It's one of my favorite verses. Let's keep uh, moving because I'm running out of time. Verse number 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways and relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, he did not do it. God forgave the wickedness of Nineveh because they were in a good place of repentance. And so that is what I wanted to bring to you today, that repentance is so necessary for us. And God is all, he's always after repentance. This is not just an Old Testament idea, right? God has always been after repentance. That's why Luke 10, when Jesus pronounces a woe to two cities, he says, woe unto Chorazin, woe unto Bethsaida, for if the works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sida, they would have what? Repented. He was after a city repenting. And that's why we're here in Philadelphia. That is why we are here in Philadelphia, because we are here to see an entire city brought to their knees in glad submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we're here. That is why Pastor Doug has planted a church in Camden, New Jersey. He didn't plant there because it's sexy to do, do ministry there. It's hard work there. Camden is one of the worst cities in America, period. You can't even argue that. You can't even, but he planted a church there strategically because he intentionally wants to see the entire city be brought to their knees to, Lord, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm planting a church in Brooklyn, New York. I'm not, I'm not planting a church there, praise God. I'm not planting a church there because I want to see the Brooklyn Nets play. I'm not planning a church there because I want some Junior's Cheesecake, although if y'all never had Junior's Cheesecake, I feel like speaking in tongues right now. If y'all never had Junior's Cheesecake, you got to get it. But I'm not planting a church there for that. I'm playing, do you know that there is two point, somebody said, thank God. Do you know that there is 2.5 million people that live in that borough? 2.5. And out of all five boroughs in New York, there's 9 million people that live there. I am after seeing 2.5 million people in Brooklyn kneeling before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why I'm planting. That's why Watts is planting in Germantown. Watson is planting in Germantown because he wants to partner with this church and other churches to see the city of Philadelphia brought to their knees. That's why we do this. We don't do this just because it's cool to do. So I, I, that's my prayer. That's my heart. One of the biggest fears I have as I'm closing, Doxy, you can start coming on up now. One of the biggest fears I have and Doxa, you come on. One of the biggest fears, one of the biggest fears I have in preaching this message in my time with the Lord was that you would hear this message, or we, I'm not gonna say you because I wrestled here. I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not there yet. But one of the biggest fears I have is that we would hear this message and walk out of here and do nothing. The biggest fear I have. 
But we have to align our hearts with the will of God. And the will of God is for us to have a healthy life of repentance. And so some of you in here, you, I want you to get that thing on your mind. That one area or two areas or three areas or ten areas that you know you need to repent of. Get those areas on your mind right now. Because what I want you to do is, and we're not doing an altar call, the altar's in your heart. And what I want you to do right now is get that area on your mind and begin to confess it. Some of you probably need to talk to somebody. Some of you probably need to confess to somebody else the sin that you've done against them. Some of you need to talk to the Lord and of the sin that you've done against him. And not only just the sin, but one of the biggest mistakes anybody can make, because I don't want to assume that everybody's a believer in here. One of the biggest mistakes you can make is walk out of here if you're not a believer and not repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so that is my prayer, that you would have a heart that's postured after repentance. Let us pray. Father, we need you. We do. We, we need you. We, we, we don't know how to repent on our own. It's uncomfortable. It's hard work. It means exposing myself and laying naked before you. That's hard for us to do. But Father, we know that if you take control of our heart and you penetrate our heart and mold it to be in a place where we could confess our sin to you and not run from you as Jonah ran from you, but run to you as Nineveh ran to you. Father, let us model what repentance look like, looks like. Let it not just be a one-time deal for us. Father, some of us in this room have not repented all year long, and we confess that to you now. Some of us need to repent for our lack of repentance. Father, we need you, and we need you to star our hearts. Father, give us, give us what we need in order to live a life that is healthy for repentance. Give us community. Give us people around us that can tell us when we're wrong and we accept it and confess it and continue to move on toward the cross of Christ. And so, Father, we pray these things in your name, believing that you are sovereignly in control and able to do all things. So, Father, would you be willing to do this in us now? Do the work in us, and we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name I do pray. Amen.